From 1944 to 1945, the 52nd Lowland Division is fighting its way across Northwest Europe. The writing is on the wall, but it's also on the page. The Army Education Branch sends a newsletter out to thousands of men, all pulling together, pushing the enemy back. This newsletter is called The Lowlander. Hello, Marin. Hello, hello. We are back again with The Lowlander, picking out our favourite articles and news updates from the newsletter that was sent out to the men of the 52nd Lowland Division between the 26th of February and 3rd of March 1945. Yeah, there was all sorts tucked into The Lowlander this week. Uh, we've got bits and pieces without a date, although I think the content will tell us which folder they should have been in, and mm -hmm. plenty to review in Europe for certain. But what else is going on in the war this week? Uh, this week, this is the week that Iran declared war on Japan, Saudi Arabia declared war on Germany and Japan, the Lebanon declared war on Germany and Japan, Syria declared war, you can, you can, there, there's a bit of a theme going on here, um, the US bombarded the Ryukyu Islands for 48 hours straight and this was also the week in which Roosevelt reported to Congress on the Yalta Conference and I think we're going to hear about that shortly. He was um, acknowledging his paralytic illness in public when he opened his speech by saying, I hope you'll pardon me for this unusual posture sitting down during my presentation, but I know you'll realise it makes it a lot easier for me not to have to carry about 10 pounds of steel around on the bottom of my legs, which I think was a surprise to some people. So that's what was going on in the rest of the world. Shall we find out what the jocks are up to? Yeah, uh, I mean, this week they're doing exactly the same as what they were last week. So they're stuck in and around African woods. Um, so that's at the sort of left-hand side of Operation Veritable. Yep. Um, the, the brigades have, have, have swapped around. Some, some people that were in the line last week are now in reserve. Um, they're just waiting for the effects of the American Ninth Army, which punched through during Operation Grenade to take effect. And what that will do is cause the Germans to pull out of those positions in front of them uh, in front of Afton Woods and from the Castile uh, Blyan Beak, who we talked about last week, this yep. castle that sticks out into the other line, they'll eventually pull out of there midweek and then the jocks will be able to start moving forward cautiously uh, to take the ground that they were meant to take on, on around the 18th of February. Good. So we're all going in the right direction. I think so. In which case, let's get started. 26th of February, 1945. Link-up of Roar Bridgeheads. The American offensive across the River Roar continued to go very well. The initial 21 bridgeheads have been joined into one which stretches for a distance of 25 miles along the east bank of the river. Progress to the east too is very satisfactory. Urich has been cleared and advanced troops are now 5 miles from the river along the road to Cologne, only 18 miles ahead. Perhaps the most important gain has been the capture of the fortress town of Duren, this has been practically cleared and US troops are three miles beyond. Again, advancing down the road to Cologne. Enemy opposition is still described as light or moderate, but the Luftwaffe has made determined efforts to interfere with the crossing on Saturday night. American anti-aircraft gunners shot down 14 of the 30 planes taking part. The Canadian First Army has made some advances in the centre of the front and forward troops are less than a mile from the little junction of Vise. General Patton's men have now cleared up the enemy pocket between Prüm and Echternacht, have crossed the Prüm River and two substantial bridgeheads over the Saar, 10 miles south of the German town of Trier. 
The Volks term here are reported in action and a number of prisoners have been taken. Right, so I've got two things there. Very briefly, I'm glad you um, cleared up the pronunciation of visa because I always pronounced it wheeze. And the second... (laughs) I suspect suspect that's what the jocks called it. (laughs) And the second thing is, how do you define a bridgehead? Well, it's any any crossing over a um, a wet gap, which is a river, basically, or a river or a lake or something like that. But anything <laughs> long and wet, basically, <laughs> it's once you establish once you establish yourself on the enemy bank. Yeah. So um, yeah. So so when they say that there were twenty one bridgeheads, there yep. were twenty one individual crossings. I can imagine in my mind's eye, I mean, yes. we've got, actually yes. got a, a map on this page, which doesn't help very much, even though it's not a bad map. But if I imagine twenty one bridgeheads, I'm almost imagining twenty one roads that peter out onto a river bank and then hop over the river and then pick up well, on the other side. It's probably a mixture of things. Uh, a lot of those. Depending on how quickly after the the they've launched the attack, so if it's a if it's a bridge that's already intact, that's an already that's a ready made bridgehead, right? And, and you just literally use that bridge that's across the river. But a lot of them would have been blown up or um, uh, demolished and whatever before they got there. the The bridgehead crossing might have been done by by assault boat or by uh, yep. flow LVT landing vehicle tank. You know these sort of amphibious vehicles, yeah, yeah, yeah. or it could have been done. Um, by sort of um, you know, a small salt craft or something like that. Okay. Um, and, and then very quickly after that, there'll be some form of temporary equipment bridging putting in, which could be um, some of your basic equipment bridging, and then working their way up to something like a Bailey Bridge, which would cross that. And that would be your bridgehead. Um, so 21 different bridge crossings. There'll be a mixture of um, um, ones which are just, you know, there's no bridge there, and they've just created their own bridgehead. Yeah. Some of them will be... Um, and they'll, they'll normally be supporting a particular unit, say a, a battalion or a brigade, and then a division. So, so, so when when he's written here that twenty one bridgeheads have been joined into one that stretches for a distance of twenty five miles, <laughs> yeah. what he means is yeah. there are twenty one occasions on which the Allies have crossed a, a, a wet gap, yeah. and now they they have nothing to worry about in terms of from one end of the line to the other for 21 miles. Yeah, there's no Germans in between them now. Right, so okay. they've got, It may, may, might only be a couple of miles deep into enemy territory, but it's all joined up. Okay, well, that will make sense. 26th of February, 1945. Substantial gains on Iwo Jima. In spite of the furious Japanese resistance, the American Marines have made good progress on Iwo. They have advanced up to 500 yards across the island and are halfway across the main airfield. On Luzon, the last Japanese have been eliminated in Manila. A further 3,000 civilians have been released as a result. I mean, do you know do you know when Iwo Jima was finally cleared? Well, this is why I, I kind of picked this out, because my I was sitting here scratching my brain going... This February 1945, end of February. It feels a bit early to say that everything's it, done and dusted. It is exactly one month from the 26th of February, so it's the 26th of March is finally when it's cleared and they've declared it done. Yeah. And I think there was even a, the odd little straggler dotted around the island after that. But um, mm. yeah, I mean, they, they, they famously they, they capture Mount Surabachi and they raise the flag on the 23rd of oh, that's spring, right. yeah, which yeah. is of course the very famous uh, photograph of the US Marines raising the, mm. the and that's a whole that's a whole podcast in itself. Um, but it's 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 it's, a, it's another whole month really until the, the place is finally cleared. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, then. In in which case the jocks are getting an insight about what's going on, but there's a bit more to do. 
2nd of March 1945. They're rolling in. Some measure of the hammering the Germans are taking is given by the number of prisoners captured by the Americans on Wednesday. 2,600 surrendered to the 3rd Army, 1,800 to the 9th and 1,200 to the 1st. Since the offensive opened, the 9th's total bag has been 13,000. That's a lot of prisoners all at once. Can you imagine being the quartermaster having to sort out some extra food for that little lot? Well, exactly. And it does it, it does become a logistical nightmare. And it's, there's just more and more prisoners rolling in, especially after the rain crossing. And once they close yeah. the, the, the sort of the Ruhr pocket and all those sort of things. So, yeah, but it's an increasing problem as they get further into Germany when larger, larger forces start to surrender. How do you feed them? How do you clothe them? How do you shelter them and all the rest of it? Yeah. I'm wondering what the logistics plan looks like and how far back in time there start to be two trains of thought. One about how to push resources forward and the second one about, well, how do we cope with all the prisoners we're going to take? Yeah, I mean, I I, I wouldn't know that the the large quantities on a sort of company battalion brigade level they each have their own sort of systems so mm. they, they have a way of filtering them back but once they get to sort of division level when you're capturing thousands of men yeah um, it's normally your sort of rear area troops within the core that will set up a pen and, and it's literally a pen it's like a fenced in area yeah and it's set out and they've got standards and, and things they have to do so but how they scale it and how they anticipate how many they're going to capture obviously once you're into germany you expect to capture mm. more but yeah god it's it's it must be a bit of a headache logistics always a nightmare 2nd of march 1945 two views on yalta The House of Commons yesterday endorsed the Crimea Conference decisions by 413 votes to none, with 30 abstentions. The debate was rounded off with speeches by Mr Attlee and the Foreign Secretary. The former maintained that the Germans could not complain at being transported, seeing how wildly they had practised this on other peoples. He also wants to see the enemy making reparations of kind. For example, if timber is needed for British houses, the Germans can supply it. Before the San Francisco Conference, which may settle the future of mankind for centuries, there will be a meeting of Commonwealth representatives in London. There's a lot in there. For a start, okay, so we know what Yalta's all about, don't we? Well, it may be worth for our our one listener out there to explain (laughs) roughly what Yalta is. It's dwindled to one now. Okay, um, so so Yalta was when the big three got together to try and work out what the heck they were going to do with the world after the war was over. Uh, The big three being, of course... Oh, the big three being the Americans. Yep. And the British. Yep. And? The Soviets. Uh, and and the, the, the fourth was not invited. <laughs> well, okay, so who do you think is the fourth? It's, uh, it's, uh, it's everybody's favourite, Charles de Gaulle. Well, exactly. And actually, the reason I put um, put a big line around this one and said, let's read this one out, is that there is so much that's being covered in Churchill's speech to the Commons mm-hmm. that that's probably the reason why there were 30 abstentions. Almost nobody agreed with the, the, the idea that there'd got to be a firm line on who was going to look after what, who was going to be responsible mm. for what. And, and for example, for example, our friend up in, um, in Berwick, Sir William Beveridge, he was um, one of the first to say, look, it's all very good and well. We've got to make sure Poland can get on her own two feet again. But let's not encourage Poland to extend westward into territories that are now German and presumably will still be occupied by German citizens, he was one of the first to say, look, it, not everybody was on the side of the Nazis. Okay, I think, they're, they're... Uh, yeah, and I think um, it's interesting you bring up Poland because this is really the rub about Yalta, isn't it? 
Yeah, yeah, it is. But but the reason that there were abstentions was was more along the lines of Churchill had tried to cram everything in. He spoke for, I think, four and a half, nearly five hours in all. He actually asked for a break during the speech, um, or he sort of planned one in, which which is fairly unusual at the time. Yeah. But what they were what they were trying to do in the speech was to cover off exactly who was going to be responsible for what, um, and which reparations were going to be made by whom, where, and when. So yeah. Yeah, so there was a lot going on. But yeah, it's it's funny because the they, they decided they're not going to invite they're not going to invite um, Ed de Gaulle, but he can come to the Potsdam conference. Yeah, because because of course they agree at the Alta to, to that they can have a French zone within occupied Germany. Yeah, um, but it, but it really is it really is this is where the the, the poles get absolutely um, hammered hammered, and actually the, 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 it turns out that. That Churchill and the West are a little bit too trusting of Stalin, who they wow. still think is a friend. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He's a friend. Yeah, and and of course it was um, also about the formation and operation of the new United Nations, which yes. makes it sound like Marvel Universe versus the other one. I can never remember which one. Oh, DC or something one. ridiculous. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's the former League of Nations becomes the United Nations. Yeah, much, doesn't it? So, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I tell you, the other thing that happened during this speech was um, uh, there, there was a. In fact, here in the Lowlander, he mentions them before the San Francisco conference. Mm-hmm. Well, most people would know where San Francisco was, but one of um, one of the, the great axes to bear on on the parts of several politicians during this speech was, why do we always have to go somewhere we've heard of? Why can't we just bring it to Britain and go somewhere like Dumbarton Oaks or Britain Woods? <laughs> I think the, <laughs> I think the um, the answer is very obvious, isn't it? <laughs> it really is, isn't it? 27th of February 1945. British prisoners. The two and a half thousand British and Dominion prisoners released by the Russian advance are due to arrive in Odessa today. 70 tonnes of comforts have been sent to the port by the Red Cross. Some information is also available about others less fortunate who were moved before the Red Army could reach them. The destination of those in Stalag 344 is unknown, but those in Stalag 8A have been divided between camps at Kassel and Nuremberg and those in 8C between Kassel and Hanover. Well, you know what this is about, don't you? Yeah, this is the marches. It's called the march or the Great mm. March West, the Long March and it, the Black March, uh, the Death March. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that gives you another name for it. I mean, this is where the, the, the Germans decide they want to move as many Western Allied prisoners of war away from the, the mm. Soviet advance. And I think there's about 257,000 uh, Allied prisoners that have moved, um, uh, of that were in the East, sorry, uh, but about 80,000 of them have been moved and they were forced to march hundreds and hundreds of miles from, from yeah. basically uh, East Germany to, to West Germany. It was um, just a, ba- a bad idea that was made worse, wasn't it? Well, it was awful, and they weren't properly provisioned. There was no food. Um, in terms of uh, of numbers of, of deaths and casualties, they reckon, I mean, the temperatures got down to about as, as low as minus 25 in some places in, in Eastern Europe. Um, yeah. And the weather was, was particularly particularly horrible. Of the US prisoners that were that were moved, there was about 93,000 of them moved, about 1,121 died. And then British Commonwealth or Dominion troops um, there's no accurate records, but they reckon it was around 2,200 of them died on the march itself. Well, that's far too many. Yes. 27th of February, 1945. News out of Scotland. 
According to Mary Hill, Mr J.G. Kidd, the Registrar-General, has some very interesting things to say about Scotland's vital statistics. Women in Scotland are marrying today at a higher rate than ever before. But he brightly adds, we still have a surplus and there are enough to go around. Because <laughs> women are property, Marion. <laughs> well, I can imagine the jocks putting vital statistics into into the conversation there and not even getting into the end of the paragraph. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I, 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 I don't really know what they're trying to say here. <laughs> There's plenty of women. Don't panic. They'll still be there when you get home. That's uh, it's yeah, yeah different times I think. I say Atkins, there's a piece of paper fluttering over there in that field. Off you trot and fetch it, will you, man? Right you are, sir. Back in a minute. <laughs> Here you go, sir. Now then, um, yes, Atkins, gosh darn it, man, this looks like propaganda. What is it doing, Atkins? I thought you said you wanted a propaganda, sir, up close like. Damn it, man, this is serious. Propaganda, Atkins, propaganda. Looks proper smooth to me, sir. Can I have it when you're finished? October the 11th to the 14th, raw triangle, walking with the jocks. This is important, man, fetch me a pigeon. Atkins! Third of March, nineteen forty-five. American watch on the Rhine. The situation in the Western Front is changing hourly as the Ninth Army drives in its headlong pursuit of retreating enemy. The extent of its victory was disclosed yesterday afternoon by the lifting of the security blackout. By then, one column had switched eastwards from München to Gladbach, captured the previous day. In München, our allies discovered crowds of dead civilians in conditions inspired, no doubt, as much by the ineffectiveness of Hitler's defences, including the newly evacuated tank ditches, as by the speed of the American onslaught. Yep. Now, there's, there's an awful lot more in this article, and I think it goes down at the end, and it says at Strayland they're only 10 miles from British troops battling on the Afferden Visa line, which mm-hmm. you know the jocks are going to pronounce Afferden Wees line. Yes, yes. So, so the, the whole article is, is setting out what's going on in Operation Veritable. Yeah. And it takes up about half the page. But I stopped after the first five words because American Watch on the Rhine. Uh, does this not remind you of Wacht am Rhein? Well, I think that might be what they're trying to do. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you know where Wacht am Rhein is from, do you? No. Okay, no, so, so, so Wacht am Rhein, most people know it from um, the, the film Casablanca, but it, it was a poem that was written by Schneckenberger in okay. 1840, and it was sung to music by, written by Carl Wilhelm. He wrote it in 19, um, 1854. It's a, it's a thunderous call for all Germans to rush and defend the German Rhine and to ensure that no enemy sets his foot on the shore of the Rhine. Uh, now, What's a bet for that? <laughs> It's a bit late for that. But there's a scene in Rick's Cafe in Casablanca. It's one of mm-hmm. the high points when um, the, the band is ordered to play La Marseillaise to oh, counter yes. the, gym, the Germans singing Die Wacht am Rhein. So that's go. what the Germans are singing. That's what the Germans are singing. Not yeah. the Marseillaise bit, because that's, t- that's the tearjerker, isn't it? <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah. Oh, and the, and the other, um, the bumper fact for, for today's episode, I suppose, is there's there's a moment, and it's less than a nanosecond, when Rick has to nod from the balcony down to the band to start playing. And, mm-hmm. um, and the anecdote goes that he went off to the director and said, what's my motivation here? What's my motivation? He was told to record it at the end of the day. There was no orchestra he was nodding at or anything. And then um, the director turned around to him and said, can you just nod at the band, all right? <laughs> <laughs> but but if you watch it and if you play it back and if you get sort of, you know, a bit, bit weird about it, if, if, if you watch it and play it back, he looks completely lost. It doesn't look, it doesn't look like old Bogey's acting at all. Bless yeah, him. I mean, they're, they're, they're actors are not uh, rocket scientists for a very good reason, aren't they? Absolutely. First of March, 1945. George Blake takes a look at us. George Blake, the Scots journalist, novelist and broadcaster, has sent us this note on his recent visit to the division. For nearly a week now, it's been my privilege to cruise around the division, talking about home and home affairs to such troops as had time to listen. I now know one road up to the front as well as I know the spittle of Glenshee, and I've been privileged to study Dutch architecture in all its forms, from a mined barn to a dugout. My only regret is that the inevitable difficulties of transport and battle conditions did not allow me to meet more of the lads. What good my visit has done, it is not for me even to guess, but I can tell you what it's done for me. Wherever I went, it was to meet patience, good humour, and always keenness and intelligence in questions and discussion. It honestly seemed to me that the open-mindedness of the soldier puts the average civilian to shame, and I intend to tell him so when I get back. Keep it up, and bring it back with you. It will be needed in post-war Britain. There are lots of things I'm going to tell them at home, to the point of making myself a confounded nuisance. They are, I hope, going to hear a good deal more than they've heard so far of your fighting record from Walcheren onwards, of the conditions in which you live, of the odds and ends you need to make life more tolerable, and of the survival in you of the traditions of a fine division. It is time, I think you'll agree, that the 52nd was put right on the map. In future letters from home, I shall reply to some of the questions raised during my tour. Meanwhile, good luck, good hunting, and many thanks. George Blake. Well, I couldn't agree any more with George there. (laughs) Do we know who George Blake is, Mary? Yes, we know who George Blake is. He was the Scots journalist, journalist, novelist and broadcaster, and the author, of course, of the inimitable Mountain and Flood. Uh, what is Mountain and Flood? Well, Mountain and Flood is the official unofficial history of the 52nd Lowland Division, following them all the way through from, I think it's September, is it, right the way through to May? No, 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 no. it starts uh, 1939, where he describes the territorial, uh, because it was a territorial division, uh, which was uh, mobilised in 1939. Okay, so but, but in, in September 1939? Yeah, yeah, and, it, and yeah, it, yeah. it actually does a little bit of preamble because, of course, George himself mm. was a alumni of the 52nd Lowland Division. He had fought in Gallipoli. Um, he was actually in the Argyll and Southern Highlanders, which at that time was part of the 52nd Lowland. Yeah. And he remained active in the sort of associations and, and various things after the war, after the First War. And then as it came into the Second World War, 
he um, he was a, a, a very well known uh, uh, journalist and and author, and and he had some ties with the division still, and he kept in contact with them. They also did some work for the uh, Ministry of Information. He did some films on Scotland, and his kind of role was to be a conduit between Scottish soldiers and mm. Scottish people sort of telling each side of them what was going on in the front and at home and, and keeping morale and, and stuff like that up. He's also, he was also sort of champion of the working classes. He was famous for a novel he wrote in 1935 called The Shipbuilders, which yeah. is a sort of um, a real sort of uh, a socially aware book about the, the sort of hardships and the struggles of, of the working class in Scotland. Um, he was also a proto-Scottish nationalist as well, although was very supportive of the of the British British war effort. But yeah, so he um, he maintained contact with the division, and then at the end of the war, the 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 commander of the fifty second, General Hickwell Smith, asked him to write the the division's history. Yeah, I tell you what. The, so when the jocks see this chap wandering up the you know Spitleg Lenshi Road, the, the the road he knows so so well to the to the front, I wonder how many people would have known who it was coming to see them. Because, and I, I think this is worth pointing out, it's not like they've come away from wall to wall television at home. They've no, come, no, they've they've come from a time. Well, this was a time when newspapers and magazines were far more important, and the mm-hmm. radio broadcasts were far more important. Of course, he was broadcasting on radio, but at the, at the top of the, the the page here, this so this article takes up just the right hand column of of the back sheet of the Lowlander. Mm. There's a tiny wee little caricature of a man with little spectacles positioned on his nose, and he's got the most dumpy cauliflower cabbage head you've ever ever seen that, that is if you see a picture maybe we'll put a picture on twitter um that is what he looks like yeah <laughs> but the the only official um description i could find of him anywhere from the period was that he was a thick set battering ram of a man with a frowning brow and unruly hair that My sounds thought- like him yeah that sounds like. Um, I mean, of course, he was nearly killed in Atherton Woods. Um, he was yeah. he was doing one of his talks. He writes about it in Mountain Flood. I think he probably bored everybody for the rest of his life about it. <laughs> but he was doing a little chat with some of the troops at the rear of or the north end of Atherton Woods, where of course the jocks were, and they were shelled by some heavy German guns from from the Siegfried Line, and uh, and uh, he managed to dodge out of the way and, and get into cover. Of course, he was a soldier, so he was fully trained. He knew how to take cover. And he survived to write the book, which which we all know and love today. I, th- I think that um, if you're going to bore everybody around you for the rest of your life with how you nearly got got killed in Atherton Woods, that makes you a very special kind of spirit animal, doesn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and finally, we go to this week's thought for the day from the 28th of February, 1945. Britain is a solitary great power which has never injured the vital interest of another European people. A German, Wilhelm de Bellius, writing in 1922. Now then. Well, the... <laughs> <laughs> so, so the thought for the day is fairly straightforward, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's not true, but but yeah, it's I can understand what he's trying to say, yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you may or may not be surprised to know that there is more to it than what we've got printed in, in the Lowlander, because I, I, think, I think the editor is, is sometimes overly selective in what he presents to the jocks. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. So Debellius was a professor of English studies at the University of Berlin. He'd written, right. a, book, he'd written a book called um, England which was not surprising a history of england written in german um in 1922 yeah and 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 this is kind of the point it was translated by a woman called mary agnes hamilton 
Uh-huh. Um, and she was the parliamentary private secretary to Clement Attlee. Okay, and okay. He, when when he helped write her obituary much later on, she, he described her as one of the ablest women who ever entered the House of Commons. I mean, she was she oh. was giving talks and lectures on current affairs and professional careers. She was the first person to present um, the week in Westminster for the BBC in 1929. She yeah. she was she was a, a a pretty pretty hoopy woman but she did a lot of translation from german to english and this was one book that she had a good go at uh-huh. the editor has been pretty selective here i'm going to read what debellius actually wrote in german it wouldn't you can have it in german in one but i think the listen the listener the sole listener would probably appreciate it more in, okay, in, in okay. english just this time then. just this time all right so her translation reads The fact remains that Britain is a solitary great power that has never injured the vital interest of another European people by annexation and that it is a fact of immeasurable moral effect in a period dominated by the principle of nationality. So so that's the bad bit, really, because the editor's taken off the words by annexation. But then she goes on and... Debellius wrote this as well. Britain is also the single country in the world that, looking after its own interest with meticulous care, has at the same time something to give others. The single country where patriotism does not represent a threat or challenge to the rest of the world. In fact, Britain is the solitary great power with a national programme that, egotistic through and through, at the same time promises to the world as a whole something the world passionately desires, order, progress, and eternal peace. Well, that is slightly different from what they've said here. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, a little, it's a little deeper, I think, yeah, isn't it? But yeah. I think we, we should forgive the editor sometimes for trying to get a few words on the page. Yeah, I think so. All right. Okay, well, I think that we should wrap it up there for this week. I think that's a good idea, yeah. All right. Okay. See you next time. Yeah. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lowlander. The Lowlander was written, produced and presented by Andy Aitchison and Merrin Walters. This was a hellish good production. And now we go to the classified football results for the week commencing the 26th of February 1945. English League North Cup Aberamham 0, Bristol City 2 Aston Villa 2, Northampton 2 Bath 4, Cardiff 5 Bury 4, Manchester City 2 Coventry 0, West Brom 3 Hartlepool 2, Newcastle 1 Leicester 1, Nottingham Forest 1 Lovells 4, Swansea 0 Manchester United 3, Oldham 2 Rochdale 0, Blackburn 8 Walsall 0, Birmingham 2 Wolverhampton 1, Stoke 3 York 6, Bradford 1 English League North Accrington 4, Blackpool 1 Bradford City 5, Rotherham 3 Burnley 4, Barnsley 0 Crewe 4, Bolton 1 Darlington 1, Middlesbrough 0 
Doncaster 2, Chesterfield 1. Everton 4, Chester 1. Huddersfield 0, Derby 4. Hull 3, Grimsby 1. Leeds 4, Sheffield Wednesday 3. Lincoln 3, Lincoln 3, Notts County 2. Portville 4, Stockport 0. Preston 2, Halifax 0. Southport 0, Liverpool 5. Sunderland 0, Gateshead 2. Wrexham 2, Tramier Rovers 1. English League South Cup. Aldershot 0, QPR 2. Brentford 2, Millwall 2. Charlton 1, Crystal Palace 0. Clapton Orients 1, Arsenal 3. Fulham 5, Brighton 2. Reading 1, Portsmouth 0. Southampton 12, Luton 3. Tottenham 4, West Ham 0. Watford 0, Chelsea 2. Scottish League Cup, South. Albion 2, Third Larnock 3. Celtic 3, Falkirk 2. Dumbarton 0, Hearts 0. Hamilton 2, Morton 6. Hibernian 1, Rangers 1. Partick 2, Clyde 0. Queen's Park 4, Erdionians 1. St Mirian 1, Motherwell 3. Scottish North East League. Aberdeen 2, Arbroath 2. Dundee United 0, Dundee 4. Falkirk 1, Dunfermline 3. Hearts 1, East 5 2. Rangers 3, Wraith Rovers 0. And that concludes the classified football results for the week commencing the 26th of February 1945. Germans off. They were hideous good.